Today, I'm talking to best-selling author and entrepreneur, Tim Ferriss. Tim is author of The 4-Hour Workweek, a book that debuted on the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller lists, has so far been published in 31 countries and made headlines around the world. Apart from being a major publishing success, The 4-Hour Workweek explores ideas of outsourcing and automating your life. It showcases case studies and principles to look at a broad concept of lifestyle design as an alternative to traditional career planning. Whether you're an employee who wants to escape the nine to five and work remotely, or an entrepreneur who wants to leverage your time so that your income isn't a function of the hours that you work, Tim writes about various strategies so you can make it happen. But to me, it's not just the ideas in this book that are interesting. What's equally interesting is the strategy he put in place, which led to his book being sold out in three days on Amazon and hitting the bestseller lists. This podcast is a recording of my face-to-face interview with Tim Ferriss when he was in Sydney, when he visited our offices at the Sydney Writers' Centre. I hope you enjoy it. So tell us, how in the world did this idea come about in the first place, the thought that you were going to write this book? So I never had any intention of writing a book at all, uh, in fact, because I was dyslexic uh, at a young age, dysgraphic, which means that even to this day, in handwriting, written English, misspell things, flip words and letters upside down and sideways. Um, really, the the impetus for the book what came from my students uh, at Princeton. So I was, um, let's take a step back and I'll provide some context. So in mid-2004, I had spent four years putting in 80 to 100 hour work weeks. It's not an exaggeration. In Silicon Valley, first as a low-level employee at a data storage startup and then as the CEO of my own company. And in mid-2004, so June, early June, specifically 2004, had a long-term girlfriend break up with me. And uh, the reason was my schedule. So it was 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., oftentimes bleeding over into the weekends, waking up in the middle of the night to check email. And she gave me a parting gift, which was a plaque of sorts, basically a folding plaque that's usually used to hold photographs. Uh, And it said, work hours end at 5 p.m., and uh, she encouraged me to keep that on my desk as a, a reminder to maintain some semblance of work-life balance. And at that point, I think I, I really realized that income has no practical value at that time. And even though I was making more per month at that point than I'd been making a few years earlier per year, um, I'd sacrificed everything else. And I went to London to remove myself from my routine and all of my, uh, my work habits for four weeks. And the objective was to either redesign my company and work style to allow some semblance of life or to shut it down completely and start from scratch. And uh, the one rule that I set at that point was uh, the most difficult to follow, which was I would only check email on Mondays for no more than two hours. And this was coming from a schedule that had me checking email more than 100 times per day, like a, a rat with a cocaine pellet dispenser. <laughs> and um, so I made the decision that I would follow this rule and then had to basically change and adapt everything to accommodate that. I expected everything to implode. I probably had a nervous breakdown the first morning, uh, I mean, quite literally, because first my first action upon waking up was always to check email. And now I didn't, I didn't bring my laptop with me purposefully. And um, so there's about a week of detox where I couldn't do anything productive because I had been reacting the last several years and hadn't been really setting in place any long-term planning. Uh, But it worked. And those four weeks turned into about 18 months of traveling through more than 15 countries, uh, seeing how far I could push some of these concepts related to outsourcing and automating, not just my business, but later in my life. So flash forward to... February 2005, um, I was at that point, after bouncing around many, many different countries in Argentina, uh, preparing for the Tango World Championships, had just set a world record in the Tango, first American to do so, and I taught my Princeton class via phone, and it was the first lecture in which I introduced this concept of lifestyle design. So sort of took all of these experiments and principles that I had been examining, case studies and interviews, and found some commonalities and put it into this broader concept of lifestyle design. Uh, 
which would allow you to sort of dissect and plan your lifestyle, just like you'd plan a career or plan investments. And the feedback was enormously overwhelming uh, from the students. And when I say students, people tend to think, ah, 20-year-old, 30-year-old guy, single, easy. These are 20 to 40-year-old students because it's uh, electrical engineering class, graduate students, PhDs, many, uh, some of whom have families. In any case, they said, a few students wrote back and said, you should, uh, you should really just turn this into a book and be done with it, ha, ha, ha. And um, like most ideas that end up having some degree of merit, I would just lay it in bed trying to go to sleep. And this, this idea would pop in my head about the book and I couldn't get to sleep. So I was like, all right, I need to get this out of my head just so I can go to sleep. And uh, put together a short proposal, sent it to a friend of mine who's an author, and that is Jack Canfield, who's the co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul. So you have the King James Bible, Harry Potter, Chicken Soup for the Soul in terms of the U.S. copy sold. And I said, Jack, uh, you know, am I full of crappers? There's something here. And he said, no, you should really go after this. So that's how the book came to be. It was turned down by 13 out of 14 publishers. Um, and it's been a very, very uh, fascinating year for me. So that's how the book came about. How did you feel after the 13th rejection? Did you actually think, is there really something here? Uh, you know, there, there was another factor that led me to write the book. And it wasn't, so the students were the first. That's what convinced me to put together the proposal. And then I spoke to a number of agents, uh, very good agents, A-list agents, because I was being referred by Jack. And uh, there's there's a very tactical way. I mean, if you want to talk about how writers can do that kind of stuff, we can talk about that too. But um, once I found my agent, the agent who really got it, and they either get it or they don't, generally, and he really got it, and we, we got along very well. And he used to be an editor, and it was important to me that he had the experience on the operational side as well, which became very relevant later. But uh, I, I asked him just not to show me the rejection letters. Um, I didn't want to see them. And uh, the scary part was um, I, I knew there was something there. And the reason I wanted to write the book, uh, another reason, is that uh, many of my best friends they're well-educated, they work extremely hard, some of them make extremely good income, but one of my close friends uh, had chosen investment banking, and I remember speaking to him when I was in Argentina. He had finally bought his dream car, his Porsche Boxster, and he was so excited about this car, and I spoke to him a month later, and, he's, and I asked him, how's the car going? And he said, yeah, I'm going to sell it. How are you going to sell your car? And he goes, well, it's, it's just been gathering dust in the garage, I spent about a half hour in it. And I realized that for myself also, with many of the sort of quarter-life crisis <laughs> and accelerated midlife crisis existential questions that I've been trying to address, if you go into a bookstore, you find usually, um, I don't pay my bills but can't figure out why my credit is bad. What do I do to fix my life? Books, they're those, which don't apply to any of my friends at all. Uh, and then you have how to become the next Jack Welch and be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And my friends don't really want that either. And uh, so I, I, was ho I hoped that the book that I would write would address that neglected demographic, which doesn't have an age limit, but uh, people who are beginning to realize that, that retirement isn't necessarily the pot of gold that people expect it to be, nor is, is possession. So uh, those things combined, uh, I think, gave me confidence in the concept, as well as having taken it for a test drive with students. So, I've done 11 or 12 of these guest lectures thus far, and um, it's, it's very consistently a, a powerful and effective concept. Um, so I had confidence in it, but I remember we had an auction. We were supposed to have an auction for the book, and uh, the deadline was 12 noon on like a Wednesday or something like that. And uh, East, East Coast time, I'm in California, my agent's in New York. And there were five or six publishers who said they were going to put in bids. And then as they got closer and closer to the deadline, for one reason or another, it's like, yeah, I want to do it. But the publishers want to do it. Or this senior editor has this, this issue, so we can't do it. Or for whatever reason, political or otherwise, they just start dropping off, dropping off, dropping off, dropping off. And then the deadline came and went, no bids. And then five minutes after the deadline, one offer came in. And that ended up being Crown. That, that, that was, the Crown was the random announcement of being a publisher. 
Um, but I, I never really, I hoped that it would, that it would sell well. Uh, but not for money, as you know. Uh, choosing writing as a career, if your primary motivator is finance, is a bad idea. Uh, and I sacrificed a lot of income to focus on the book and the way I did to write it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would have been happy if just my close friends read it. Um, people, in retrospect, like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But it is, it's true. And um, I ended up hitting the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal the first week. And that just blew my mind. From Amazon, so, uh, Amazon sales alone, because there was so little distribution of the book. I mean, it was, st- it was stuck in the catalog at the last minute, sort of, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. How did you feel when, when you found out? And who told you? Do you remember the oh, I, I remember. You want the unedited version? Sure. So. <laughs> so the unedited version is, uh, so I never did any, any book tours or bookstore signings or anything like that. Because uh, I, I interviewed about a half dozen to a dozen best writing authors about their writing process because so I was terrified about the prospect of writing a book. Um, and so I had interviews with all of them to help me write the book. Then I also did interviews with best-selling authors. They're not always the same thing. And universally, when I asked the question, what is the biggest waste of time and money? Uh, what would you not do? Uh, having been through the process, they said, book tours, book signings. So I didn't do any. And... Um, so I focused on social media online and blogs, and then um, did a number of radio satellite tours. So radio satellite tour is where you, you sit in a small prison. Be called TARDIS. <laughs> and uh, in my case, I did my first radio satellite tour in New York at the, at the Random House offices. And we did... Starting at about 5 a.m., radio interviews, 10 to 30 minutes length until about 4 p.m. So I went through a few pots of coffee and uh, did, did these radio interviews. And uh, you know, I wanted to compress them into one day uh, for a lot of reasons I can explain if we want to go into that. And <clears throat> so we did that, and this is the second week of sales. The New York Times reports on Wednesday. So this happened to be a Wednesday. So announced like a week later. In any case, the lists, the lists have their own alchemy to them. And uh, so I finished doing everything, and I get a call from my editor, Heather. And she goes, Tim, how are you feeling? I go, I'm exhausted. <laughs> but I feel good. I feel good. It was, uh, it was actually pretty fun. And uh, so I'm sitting down against the wall, but back to the wall, <laughs> exhausted with the phone ringing. She goes, well, I have some news for you. Uh, yeah, what's that? She goes, you, you hit the list. And what are you talking about? She goes, you hit the New York Times list. And I went, Heather, I'm really tired. Please don't. <laughs> and she goes, no, you hit the list. You're number 15 on the extended list, which is, I mean, technically you're still on the list. And I was like, no, I didn't. And she's like, no, you hit the list. She's like, come on. She's like, come downstairs. I'll give you a copy. And I was like, okay. And I hung up. I was like, holy shit. I couldn't believe it because uh, I had at one point approached uh, the president of a very large book distributor, not Barnes and Noble, not Amazon, not not, not any of the names that most people will be familiar with, uh, and spoke to them on the phone and uh, out of respect for my agent, who was a real hotshot editor at one point, he, he took the call. And I explained to them how I wanted to partner with them and to do a number of things and my, what my plans were for the different lists. And he basically said, look, kid, let me tell you how this works. And you know, sort of laughed a little bit. He's like, you're not going to hit the lists. Uh, I know that every writer wants that, but I'll, let me explain a few things to you. And basically ran down this list of reasons and statistics that indicated how I would never hit the list, or any list for that matter. And went so far as to send me PDFs via email after our conversation with so it's the statistical likelihood of hitting different lessons. Like, I think you should readjust your expectations, be more realistic. And uh, that, was the, that was the last conversation that he had with me. And um, so to, to, after conversations like that, to see it list in the first week, based on, on Amazon sales, now 
Amazon ran out of stock like that. And it was not distributed well at all at that point out, all, offline. So basically hit both lists with three days of Amazon sales. So once that happened, I said, holy crap, there's, I guess there's something here. And um, I mean, a year later, it's, it's, it's uh, just hitting the number one of the New York Times businesses again. And there's no advertising, nothing. So tell us a bit more about your strategy with social media and blogs. So um, I was interviewed by one of the uh, most powerful and popular tech bloggers out there, Robert Scoble, and a very nice guy, very very fun guy, and um, he interviewed me about this. (laughs) Did you approach him to be interviewed, or how did Uh, you come about Okay, so... So basically, my uh, my general social media pr- approach was getting drunk with bloggers, <laughs> and that's that's a half tongue in cheek. Uh, but what I recognized is number one, uh, the publisher wanted to control a lot of the different PR mechanisms and avenues, so I had limited options to play with. I knew nothing about blogs, very little, nothing about social media, really. Yeah, but recognize I was one of the few hands that I had to play if I wanted to play it because the publishers were very hesitant about that world and nervous about that world. So I started educating myself on blogs, reading blogs, and uh, began to look at how different blogs were quantified. So some were ranked according to incoming links. Others were ranked according to traffic. Uh, and then began to look at how influence was was defined because people always talk about influencers and this and that, and you find that it's actually defined very poorly. So my my belief, and this is actually very closely related to a lot of the topics in the book, is if you can't measure it, you don't understand it. And people are very bad at measuring influence, so I tended not to pay a lot of attention to that. Uh, But what I did recognize is that, number one, if you're on a blog that is well-read, even by a thousand people, it's not how much traffic they have, it's who reads their blog. So, and I would present that, uh, unlike most traditional media, with a question, would you rather have a blog that has, let's say, 100,000 readers, or would you rather have a blog that has 1,000 readers, but they're all bloggers? And, of course, I would opt for the second, because you get immediate syndication. And... What I did, rather than send them an email, although I did that in some cases, is I went to conferences, and I would go to conferences, and um, I would get to know the organizers whenever possible. If not, I would try to get to know at least one panelist beforehand, and someone who was not well-known but a panelist, which meant they, they were one degree or two degrees of separation from most people, and it was never about the book. Never, it was never about the book. It was always about me. Hey, I'm a total idiot. I don't know anything about this stuff, um, but it's really interesting. And here's why I'm a geek. Like, there's always some supporting evidence to show that I, just, I wasn't this interloper just trying to capitalize on blogs. And which was true. I mean, I'm fascinated by the technology. And I would come in and generally would just ask them, you know, who do you think I would get along with? Like, do you think there's somebody who wouldn't find me totally annoying? Who, who know something about blogs, and um, and they'd usually make one or two recommendations, and I'd just go up to a group of, I mean, guys generally in the world of blogs, not always, but uh, a group of guys, or like Gina Trapani, who writes Lifehacker, who's awesome, or this group of people having beers, and I'd say, hey guys, do you mind if I uh, just listen in? I'm totally idiot. probably not going to contribute much on the technology side, but I'm going to do my best to learn, and be like, okay, fine. And then I would stand there, and if they said something like, blah, 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 Ruby on Rails, I would say, uh, sorry, you know, Ruby on Rails, just 10 seconds, can you tell me what that is? Because I'm in the deep end of the ignorance pool. And it's very uncommon that people who are trying to promote something, and that was secondary, I'll explain that in a second, um, approach things that way. They tend to try to come in completely prepared and impress people with their knowledge. And it doesn't work. Very rarely works. So what would happen is I would just, over the span of, let's say, two or three days, so I'd go to multi, multi-day conferences, um, at some point they'd say, all right, what the hell do you do? Like, <laughs> who are you? What do you do? And I would just say, oh, um, yeah, I'm this guy, and I'm 
guest lecturer at Fresno University, something for credibility. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard to get that. If you're a member of an association, you can do that as well. Um, and I work on my first book. So this is a very important point. So there's a certain art to eliciting questions and interests. So I would never say, like, boom, 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 here's my 30-second pitch like I gave you at the beginning. I would never do that. I'd say, I'll work on my first book. And they go, and? What's it about? And go, it's about this. I would always give them a little bit less than I knew they wanted. And so they would ask me questions, and then ultimately, usually by the end of it, they'd say, cool, oh, that sounds pretty neat. Like, yeah, and I'd say, yeah, well, you know, if you want, and I would make it very explicit. I don't expect you to write about it or anything, but if you want, I mean, I have publisher can probably send you a copy if you want to check it out. Uh, and I would also, I think being honest about defects or limitations of what you have uh, helps people to trust you. So I would say, you know, I don't think you're going to find all of it interesting. You'll probably find this and this really unbelievable. But I do think that this chapter and this chapter, about 30 pages total, would really be relevant, given that you write about this and this. And they'd be like, cool, great. Because no one has time to read books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least default bloggers who get 100 books a week to review. Um, and that was the general approach. But there are a couple of principles at, at play here. Um, I avoided the busy channel. So the most the most congested communications channel to reach bloggers is email, which makes it least likely that you're going to have dialogue with them. I avoided that. Avoided telephone for similar reasons. Uh, and then met them in person. And it also humanizes you, so it's, it's harder for them to immediately write you off especially if you're being referred by someone else. And then I essentially engaged in conversation about topics around the book, not about the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, never pitched the book, just made it available after people felt that I was credible. You can't promote anything unless you overcome the credibility hurdle first. And, and that was it. And I also never became a traffic bigot in the sense that I, I didn't look at Techerati and look at the top 50 blogs and say, okay, these are the people I need to pitch. No. The better approach is to ask yourself or identify who the thought leaders are. So who did the, who did the traffic leaders read who are not traffic leaders? And those people are going to be easier to reach. Uh, they'll generally have more time and bandwidth attention to, to dedicate to you. And uh, they're interested in ideas, which is another reason why you can't leave it the book. And I also recognized that using the online channel, my goal wasn't to have hundreds of articles written about the book. It was to have a blogger of good standing and good reputation say, this guy has an interesting idea. That's a cool idea. And then how would he attribute it to me? It would be Tim Ferriss, author of X, or it would be Tim Ferriss and the link under my name to the Amazon page. And that's all, I mean, ultimately, at the end, that was uh, what contributed to the groundswell. I didn't need a feature article written. It, was, it, was, it would be helpful, and it happened later. I mean, when enough noise was created online, then I get a call from the New York Times, then I get a call from Der Spiegel, then I get a call from the United. And, and so I took, in some ways, a bottom-up approach. It was like the anti-Oprah approach. Like, I, I dig Oprah. I think she's a hot shot, and she's awesome. She's a stud, but she's not going to return my phone calls. So I took the bottom-up approach where if I made enough noise, offline media would have to pick it up because they would not want to be last. So this was all very, very strategic and very tactical. Did you do this in the months preceding the release of the book, or what period was this? And uh, how long did you do it for? It uh, took me about three to four months to seek the ground. And the uh, total budget for launching the book... <laughs> Budget. The total expense was $25,000, roughly, 18000 of which was wasted on a PR firm. One of the most respected book PR firms in Manhattan, and $6,000 retainer per month, and they got one print feature. And they were, you know, seeding the ground, warming up relationships, et cetera, et cetera, and did nothing. And uh, there are definitely excellent publicists out there, but I, I think that retainers are very overrated. Um, so what that means is that the entire book was launched for $7,000. Uh, I would say at least half of that was just uh, books being mailed out, uh, postage cost, and then uh, flights and hotels to and from conferences. And uh, people have asked me, if you were to do it again, would you 
what would you do differently? And I don't think I'd do. I don't think I'd do any of it differently. And these are conferences like BloggerCon or... Uh, South by Southwest, uh, Web Expo, Web 2.0 Expo. uh, And I I think the benefit that I had is that under it all, I'm actually very, very geeky. (laughs) I really, really enjoy the sort of hacker mentality. It's like I'm not a programmer, you know, I don't know Lisp or Java or C or anything like that. Um, I'm headed that way. But I, I respect what these people do, and I recognize how hard it is. And I think that if someone comes in with the idea, and I get emails from writers all the time, they're like, yeah, how do I pitch bloggers? How should I do this? I'm like, well, first of all, if you pitch bloggers, bad things happen. <laughs> I mean, uh, blogging is, is the wild west. So if, if you send a stupid pitch to someone and they want to give you a swift kick in the ass, they can, and it'll backfire big time. So um, I'm give you an example. So a friend of mine, very offensive guy, Dan Tucker Max. Um, he's had uh, his book was New York Times bestseller, and he did it all on his own online. Because he has a very very popular uh, website, blog, and presence online. Anyway, um, so he was violently turned down. His book is called "I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell." It's basically you can you, you can imagine they're they're tr- they're sort of real life stories of his drunken debauchery, um, but very very funny. Anyway, so he was violently turned down by many, many publishers. And uh, then once he became, once his book became a New York Times bestseller, he started getting these letters from the publishers that turned him down, from the PR department saying, this is one actual letter he got. It was, dear Mr. Max, no one calls him Mr. Max. <laughs> dear Mr. Max, you are an influencer in your community. Yeah. <laughs> we we know you will love our included book, blah, 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 ISBN, blah, blah, blah. And very much appreciated if you could promote it to your community. In this. <laughs> and um, so he was like, should have done your homework. Like, you guys violently turned me down a month ago. He took that letter, put it on his bulletin board, which has about you know 100,000 acolytes of his, with the cell phone and email address of... The woman in the PR department who sent it, and he said, "Yeah, feel free to let her know what you think of this." And she quit her job a week later because she was just overwhelmed with emails and phone calls. So, if you're going to step into that world, you have to do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. But it took me three, four months. Okay. Um, and for people who have a full-time job, this is probably a question get asked a lot. For people who have a full-time job, they have an employer who they have to be accountable to, and that sure. sort of thing. What would be your top tips? to them to create their own four-hour work week? So the first thing I would say is, uh, although there are case studies in the book of people who have reduced their work week to four hours, um, it's important to recognize that the objective is not to be inactive, and the objective need not be to get to four hours um, necessarily. So the way that I would start is, number one, to get a, an incredibly good and clear understanding of how your performance is measured. How are your raises and promotions determined? What are the checkboxes and criteria that are used? So really to understand the business model of your company and think like an entrepreneur so you can measure your output and the effect that it has on the profit and loss statement. Um, and I'll give a real world example of this. So there is a, uh, one, one of the case studies in the book is a gentleman who's in his uh, mid-40s as a family, and he's in high-level tech support for one of the largest computer companies in the world. So, tech support. He's expected to be on call 24-7, essentially. And now, he has the capability, he's the only person in his department who has, he has the freedom to take two months per year to travel internationally. So, well, how the hell did he get from there to there? The way he did it was, initially, he worked at home two or three Saturdays in a row, right? And so he first determined how his output was measured, or he created metrics to measure his output, whether that's billable client hours, projects completed, account payable cycle, payment terms. If you're you're being paid in any way to contribute value, which you should, (laughs) then there are ways to measure. And he essentially also volume of email sent, volume of CCs, sent to the boss, right? 
And he looked at, he compared his performance in the office versus his performance on Saturdays outside of the office. And he was able to, to set a time to meet with his boss and walk in and say, okay, here's my productivity. Here's my, my measurable output that contributes to the bottom line of the company. When I'm not interrupted every 10 minutes with these types of issues that only take place in the office. Also, subtracting the commute, this is the additional work I'm able to produce. Um, here's the amount of workload that I'm able to remove from your plate because I don't have to CC you due to this, this, and this. And he's able to make a very compelling case as a, as a business benefit, not a personal perk, as to why he would then propose, uh, I'd like to propose, or he would say, um, you know, would it be reasonable if we could test this, let's say, for one day for the next two weeks? Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. You don't want to propose Monday or Friday because then it seems like a thinly veiled three-day weekend. Um, so he started with that and then was able to expand it. And it got to the point where he was able to be wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, basically. And he would have, in some cases, his uh, his wife ended up being Chinese. He would go to China. He would have, through Skype and a number of different things, have phone calls routed to his cell phone, wherever he happened to be with a quad band phone. And so he's, he's now over... A very short period of time um, created this vast amount of flexibility, uh, and in some cases, he has more flexibility than the CEO of the company. Um, and it was through small steps like that. Uh, so within a company, it's really a matter of recognizing number one, I do have a choice. Very few people people give their bosses more credit for having control than they actually do. I have a choice. There's more flexibility than I currently see. If you're contributing value. So if you're, if, if you're not producing good work, then you have no right to ask for the next period. Um, and then um, small, measurable steps that over a short period of time can give you things like that. Um, another example is a, uh, a uh, software account executive in Silicon Valley, San Mateo, and his name's Charney. I met him uh, not long ago. And he has tunicates. Well, one young kid and a brand new baby boy. And he wants to spend more time with his, his wife and kids. That's the only thing that he doesn't have is his time. And the, the only recommendation I made uh, to him, uh, because we met at a birthday party and I couldn't go into this elaborate discussion of different techniques and so forth, was set an alarm on your Outlook or on your Blackberry that pops up at 10, 2, and 4 p.m. It simply asks, am I being busy or am I being productive? Am I being busy or am I being productive? He's like, well, what do you mean? So the way he rephrased it based on the description I gave him was, am I inventing activities to avoid the important? Because the important things tend to be the most uncomfortable. And he contacted me two weeks later. He said, I've accomplished more in the last week than I did in the previous four weeks combined. And because I documented that, I'm now able to spend Fridays with my family at home in a span of two weeks. Um, so those would be a few of the ways to look at it. So the point is to structure a scenario where it's actually a business benefit as opposed to a personal benefit. So right. the, your boss can actually see what he's getting out of it or she's getting out of it Absolutely. as opposed to you slacking off or whatever. Right, exactly. Right. And, and it's, it's, there's really no way for them. There's, it's very difficult for someone to argue with you if you're increasing your performance, measurable performance, so that they have a way to justify their decision to upper management. Uh, and providing them with personal benefit to them in form of reduced work, workload mm. or management responsibility. And would you say there are more? There was there are some jobs or industries that are more aligned to being able to do that than others. Sure. I mean, people. I think any author who tells you this book is written for everyone is lying, lying or delusional. Uh, this book is. So I've had the question. Uh, what about the bricklayer? What about the taxi driver? <laughs> and, you know, I, I think they actually could get a lot out of the book, but it's, it's designed for, for white-collar workers, office workers or knowledge workers, people who spend some time on the phone or on a computer, which is, in most of the world, is going to be feeling the effects of time famine or time poverty. So um, I think anything that is really part of the knowledge economy, which is very broad, so ranging from people in banks to lawyers, to stay-at-home moms who have part-time businesses, to any type of business owner, certainly any type of business owner. As far as employees go, um, I found very few limitations uh, because the, the, 
book is, is designed in such a way to be modular. What I mean by that is it's a menu of options. No one who reads the book is going to use everything. There's no way. Uh, I'm so, trying. <laughs> right, right. But, 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 I mean, you can, it, it is possible, but uh, people might look at, let's say, the concept of personal outsourcing. They go, I work in law. I can't use personal outsourcing. There are client confidentiality requirements. Or I'm in healthcare. There are regulations. I can't send things to India or Philippines or Croatia. And I said, that's fine. Don't use that chapter then. You know, it's one of 16 chapters. Um, so I think that uh, the, the concepts are very flexible. I mean, I think of them almost like investing. So uh, you know, am I going to become a day trader? Absolutely not. You know, might I invest in a few particular stocks uh, and put the rest of the money into a money market account or into an index, index Vanguard fund? Sure. So there are options for every scenario, set of responsibilities and uh, risk tolerance for that matter. Um, so dip into the book and see what works for you. Yeah, absolutely. So you, the book has come out in many countries in the world and yeah. um, what has been the response been, well, I'm, the response has been huge, but um, what has been the response been in terms of their reaction to the book and whether they think that, whether different countries differ in the way that they think it can apply? So this this has been it's been uh, it's been fascinating to see how this plays out uh, on a number of levels. So the book has been sold into thirty one languages, and it's come out in about eight or nine so far. And they all have their own subtitle. They all have different subtitles. So it's it's interesting to see sort of the reflection of the national psyche in the subtitles. So uh, the German cover is awesome, um, and it's uh, what is it? So, more time, more money, more life. I was like, that's a good one. I like that. Um, and then others focus on the money, 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 money side of things. Like how to become super rich in four hours a week, which would be uh, like the Chinese version. Not a huge surprise there. No offense, I live there. All right. Um, so, yeah, I'll tell you. And... Um, what you, what I see in every, almost every country, is that the book makes people, the concepts in the book make people uncomfortable, necessarily so. And change, I think, is an intimidating, is an intimidating experience. So in every country, there there will be a faction of people who will say that can work in the U.S. It would never work in this country. In the same way that people in the U.S might be inclined to say, if they look at the cover, well, I have a family, I can't do that. I have a mortgage, I can't do that. I'm an employee, I can't do that. So with every country, there is that first first hurdle is, I'm an Australian, I am an Italian, I am you know, the Somalian, I can't use this. Um, but once, once it hits a certain critical mass, and there are case studies in whichever country it happens to have been published in, then it's overcome fairly quickly. Uh, because it's, it's really not U.S. specific. Um, and uh, the, in a digital world, and most developed countries, or developing countries even, are experiencing this, you have the potential for infinite interruption and infinite minutia. And I think that we're reaching a critical you know, global bottleneck in that respect. So it's, it's been a bestseller in Japan. I just found out it's, it's third printing in four weeks or something like that in the UK. Uh, just hit the bestseller list in Germany. I mean, this is a universal problem. And I think that uh, people in each location will find resources that they can use and leverage uh, for the different approaches in the book. Um, we'll, see, we'll see. So far, so good. You've mentioned in Australia that the focus in your radio interviews that you've done has been on the money side of it. Is that yeah. been surprising? It, it has been really surprising. Um, so it's always been you know, how to get super rich in four, week, four hours per week. And uh, whereas in the U.S. it tends to be, good God, you know, I get, e I get email on my BlackBerry at 3 a.m. in the morning on Saturdays. If I could just stop that, if I could just turn off for five hours, what a fantasy. It's very different. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is. It, it seems to me that 
in the uh, the English-speaking countries I've been to so far that the Australians are the most um, right right up there with the Americans, even perhaps more so, at least in Sydney. Um, materialistic in the sense of um, deriving some self-value from possessions. Seems like the house on the beach, the car, the this, the that. The, there's a lot of possession focus. Um, it's it's surprising to me because uh, he thinks I like that. Yeah, and just the geographical beauty of this area also. Like if you go to San Francisco, which is very similar in many respects, you don't find the same focus on on possessions. I mean, there's ex exceptions, of course, but that has been curious. Yeah, very very curious. So since the book came out and it's been so popular, what's been your primary activity? Promoting the book, doing other stuff. What have what what have you been doing? So I don't do um, I don't do that much to promote the book in the sense of um, what I do might, as a byproduct or a side effect, promote the book, but I don't do it because of the book. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, and I think another reason why. Uh, the book is done well is that I, I find the ideas uh, I really do think that the, the concept of lifestyle design is one of the few viable alternatives to the time management approaches that have very obviously failed people um, so I'm happy to talk about it uh, but for, for example this trip to Sydney I actually I didn't come here really to, to promote the book I came here I was invited to speak I'm speaking today later today and um, I'd always wanted to come to Sydney, so I was like, okay, they're going to cover, you know, business class, first class airfare, fine. <laughs> I'd wanted to come anyway, so fantastic. And um, so I came over here, and I was like, well, since I'm here, you know, I'd love to, to see what I can do with the concepts in, in Sydney and explore that. And so here we are. Um, I spend, so as far as how I spend my time, uh, I am a, an investor, um, angel investor in seed rounds with technology companies in Silicon Valley. Um, I also very much enjoy my blog. I really, the, the blog is, is very exciting to me. I think it can be actually much bigger than the book in some respects. It's 20 million hits a month and it's you know, top 1,000 blog now out of 150 million. Uh, it didn't exist a, a year ago. So it's, uh, it's very exciting. The, the leverage that I can get through that is absolutely astounding. Um, I'm very involved with educational reform in the US and elsewhere, so. Um, How are you involved in that? So I've, uh, using social media fundraising, has helped to finance about uh, projects um, and about 15,000 students in the U.S. It's a pretty big number uh, in public schools. And uh, I'm also building uh, schools to spread literacy in, in certain developing countries. So far, I've built two schools in Vietnam, building schools in Nepal, India, and also in countries where the alternative would be madrasa terrorism schools, so offering sort of non-denominational, functional, literacy-based schooling in those areas. Um, and that takes a good amount of effort and marshalling of resources. So um, I'm in the process of getting together uh, political leaders and, and business leaders to help really address some of the uh, critical educational issues in the U.S., especially in science and math education. And where did that drive come from? Where where did that interest come from? Uh, I recognize the opportunities that have either been made available to me or that I've been able to create by virtue of the access to education I have. And um, I think that if, if I am able to focus on one cause, so to speak, I think that education is the most root uh, pathway for addressing almost every other problem that we experience in society or ecology or what have you. So, uh, you know, rather than saying, all right, well, let's address poverty by increasing aid, I say, well, let's address poverty by actually enabling these people to create businesses through microfinance or something like that. So Muhammad Yunus is, is uh, I think, a very interesting role model in that respect. Uh, I, I just think that, that good education and training people through critical problem solving um, is a way to address all, almost all of the issues that we face, and that, that investment now is going to be extremely important, especially in math and science over the next 20 years. Um, yeah. So paint as a picture of five years from now from not only 
your activities in the social, you know, hemisphere, um, but also what you'll be doing business-wise and also maybe how many other books you've, been re- you've written. In five years. Uh, yeah. I don't think I'll write more than one more book if I do it all. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not interested in producing a lot of books. Um, but I, uh, my, my cl- the closest thing to a role model that I would have in that world would be probably Jim Collins from Good to Great. Uh, he really does, he spends a lot of time on his research, gets the facts straight, and produces one solid book every few years. There are other approaches to it. You can kick out a book or two a year, find a ghostwriter, stick your name on the cover. It's very common. It's not interested in that. Um, now I view these books as, as my legacy, and this book is my legacy. And if it expires in six months, it's out of date in six months. If it's a passing fad like Razor Scooter or something like that, I'm not interested. And I really want to try to produce something that has staying power as a, a seminal work in Concept X. Um, as far as uh, business-wise, uh, it, it's hard to say. I, um, I, I don't, I'm not a very firm believer in long-term planning. Um, and that's not to say that I'm haphazard, uh, nor that I don't believe in investing or saving. I do. But uh, I find that when most people attempt long-term planning, and by long-term I mean longer than two years, further than two years in the future, um, if they can follow it reliably, they're generally playing too far within their their safety zone, their comfort zone, which means they generally sacrifice experiences and achievement. Um, so I'd say I, I usually plan six to twelve months out, um, and then quarter by quarter. But from a business standpoint, I, nothing I do right now is is financially driven. Um, I have a very uh, Consumption doesn't fill the void, <laughs> so um, that, that's uh, not going to be a huge driver for me, I don't think. Uh, I'll definitely be doing more investing. I'm investing probably once per quarter now. I'd like to get that to once per month. This is investing in your own personal portfolio, or is this your angel investing? Angel investing, technology company. What kind of um, firms are you investing in? So uh, this far, I've invested in one social media online storage company, uh, which I think is very interesting. Uh, named Badongo.com, B-A-D-O-N-G-O.com. Very strong presence in Asia, but they, ha- they really haven't addressed the U.S. market. Um, as of yet, uh, there's another company related to online identity protection and reputation protection, which is called uh, reputationdefender.com. Um, uh, there, there are quite a few others I'm looking at in the personal productivity um, priority management field that are very interesting. Um, but uh, I'm not too limited in that respect. I mean, I have, a, I have a broad scope of interests. And really what it comes down to is if I feel I can add value that in excess of the money that I'm contributing, then I'll consider investing. If not, then I won't. When did you start thinking that you wanted to get into angel investing and why? I'd say in 1999. Right. Um, that's when I first took high-tech entrepreneurship class at Princeton that I know, uh, I guess lecture too. And the professor, his name is Ed Shao, spelled out, or S-Z-S, oh, sorry, Z-S-C-H-A-U. Um, he was congressman for Silicon Valley for two terms. He's considered one of the founding fathers of Silicon Valley because uh, he introduced the capital gains tax, which brought in all the investment to match the technology and grow the technology. Um, he was head of IBM data storage division at one point, which is massive. One of the youngest teachers in history at Stanford Business School. Extremely famous professor of management at Harvard Business School. Uh, just an extremely accomplished guy, competitive figure skater at one point. Um, so uh, we, have a, we get along well, and uh, he teaches. Uh, I've always wanted to be a teacher. And I, think, I think books are a good medium for that. I also think the blog is an excellent medium for that. Uh, but he, I've had many, many conversations with him over the year about angel investing and the, sort of the personal gratification he gets out of it and the value that he feels he's able to contribute um, as an angel investor. And um, so it's, it's, been, it's been a long time coming, but I, I didn't want to. I wanted to wait until I had more practical experience and relationships um, and capital. So when was your first investment? First investment was about 
six to eight months ago. Okay. So I only recently started. And I don't invest by myself either. I only co-invest with more experienced investors. Right. Keep me from making really stupid decisions. <laughs> so you tango. Yeah. How did that start? Why do you still do it? The, un- the unedited the unedited. Yes, unedited. So Dance of love. Yeah, so I uh, all right, so in January of uh, no, okay, no, it wasn't February two thousand five, it was later when I had that couple I guess much of my students. January of two thousand five, I ended up in Panama um, with a friend of mine who's half Panamanian. And ended up doing all sorts of crazy things, like living on a Smithsonian research island for a week with fishermen in <laughs> the ocean, doing snorkeling because they did not trust their scuba gear at all. Okay. Um, you know, mask and duct tape on one side. It was amazing. Uh, amazing experience. But in Panama, met a number of people, uh, many people, and a few of them said, you have to go to Argentina. have to go to Argentina. And that is how I planned our not planned the entire 18 months because my life up to that point had been planned in 10 minute increments in Outlook calendar. So I wanted, I didn't want anything to be planned. I really wanted to, to be able to act on spontaneity. So I had a number of people recommend I go to Argentina, uh, you know, excellent, excellent, best beef on the planet. I'm a, I'm, I'm a fairly avid red meat eater. Uh, beautiful women, okay. Red blooded male, kind of hard to go. You know, hard to lose, pitching me on that. And then uh, just very safe, beautiful architecture. So the Paris of South America is fantastic. I'll check it out. So I fly down, and I had no interest in tango. None. None whatsoever. All I envisioned with tango is some guy from Shall We Dance with you know, flower in his teeth, a sequins shirt, or something got awful like that. I had no interest. Um, and uh, I had a falling out with my Spanish school at one point. Because in, in very true Argentine fashion, um, they just decided they want to raise my rates forty percent because I was asking too many questions or something. <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> give me my money back. And uh, so I left the school in the middle of the day, and I didn't have anything to do for a few hours until my, I was meeting up with a, a Danish friend of mine. And every time, I, every day, I'd walk back and forth to the Spanish school and pass this tango store that had classes on the second level. What am I going to do? You know, I'll take a tango class. It's the birthplace of tango in Buenos Aires. Fun. I'll try it. So I go in, go up to the second floor, and there are about ten gorgeous women and two guys. Me, I'm one of them. And then the other guy's kind of fat and looks very bored. Okay. So they start the class, and the head teacher looks like um, he looks like. Al Pacino from The Godfather. He's got like his hair slipped back. I mean, Buenos Aires is basically built by Spanish, uh, Italian, and German immigrants. So it's very interesting um, mix of blood there. This guy is straight out of The Godfather, and, he, and you could tell he really wanted to have that image as well. Gustavo, and uh, what a character! And he, so he sent his assistant over to teach me the basic eight step in the corner. And the Latin women are not very uh, modest in dress. They're just blissfully unaware or just very uh, proud to embrace their femininity. So it's just a, it's a latex <laughs> like workout clothing. And uh, but yay tall. And she was very annoyed. Very annoyed that she had to take the time out to teach me the basic eight step. She wanted to be practicing. And very fiery uh, Argentine girl. Tango dancers in particular are pretty moody. And so she, she comes over to me and she's like, okay, I don't know all that. Come on, grab me. And I'd never done any type of partner dance. I'm about 165 pounds now, like 75 kilos or so. And at the time, I was like 90 kilos. I was a lot bigger, muscular. And, she, and I was like, ah, she's like, come on, come on, come on, come on, all that. So I was like, ah, and just grab her really lightly. And she throws her arms down kind of spins around to look across the room and he shouts over to the professor like everybody stops dancing and she goes this guy's built like a goddamn mountain and he's grabbing me like a f-ing Frenchman in Spanish <laughs> and everyone was like ah! so I'm humiliated she turns around she's like okay come on 
traveling. And so I'm embarrassed when I just out of anger and frustration, just kind of, I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. All right. And just kind of crushed her. And she looks up at me and doesn't even flinch. She goes, now that's better. And I was like, (laughs) signed up for 10 classes. And, um, but I also realized by the end of the second class, um, and I think most people realize this fairly quickly, that that was something I could actually be good at. It's like, you know, if I lose about 40 pounds, which I did, I lose about 40 pounds, um, because big legs are not good for tango. You look like a dancing monkey or something. If I lose about 40 pounds, uh, I think I could really be good at this. So I did it. ended up starting to analyze it, deconstruct it, and then um, did it six to eight hours a day. To the point where the balls of my feet were black at some points. I had to take a few days off just to let the, the bones in my feet recover. Uh, and ended up, uh, just, just, just for the sheer hell of it, uh, one day I saw posters up all over the city for the Buenos Aires Championships. I was like, said to my partner. So my, my teacher at one point was a very famous female dancer. She'd been one of the most famous female dancers uh, maybe 10 years prior named Alicia Monti, and she was my teacher at one point, and then she said, uh, when I got to a certain level, she said, you know, you really need a good male teacher. There are things I can teach you, but you need a good male teacher to really um, explain the intricacies of the lead, and the only way to get some of these really good teachers is to take privates. They just don't do group lessons, and uh, so I signed up for a few, and I said, well, I need, I don't know, a partner. Like, do you mind coming with me for one or two classes? And we ended up going to many, many classes together and then practicing together and uh, became good friends. And so at one point, I saw all these posters. I said, hey, do you want to compete in this? Like, ha, ha, ha. And you can see so the thread of this, like, you should do this, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, maybe I should try that. Um, and she goes, yeah, okay. And so I was like, holy crap, I'm actually preparing now for the Buenos Aires Championships. So did that, expected to get knocked out like the first round. Ended up that we were the like, the people's choice, like audience favorite out of this entire round of competition. Made it to the semifinals and then got knocked out. And I was like, you know what? I was really nervous. I can do better than that. I can do better than that. And um, so I was like, oh, that was fun. Uh, I just tried to do the world championships. It was in a few months. And um, that's, how it all, that's how it all started. And then we were training and training and training and training, you know, six, eight hours a day. Like, well, if we're doing this much training, why don't we just try to set a world record in something? So I got the Guinness Book of World Records and looked it up and took some video and set it in and set a world record. And then had to break it later on national television. But um, totally unexpected. Accidental. Accidental. Yeah. Were you a determined high achiever as a child? What were you interested in when you were little? Uh, I think that um, I've always been competitive. Uh, but most of the things, so people look at my bio in the book, for example, like the Chinese kickboxing national champion, world record holder, tango, blah, blah, blah. And they either assume I'm a liar, which you know, a lot of people do, which is not true, or um, they assume that it's been equally spread out throughout my life. The reality is almost all those things have happened in the last few years uh, you know, since really embracing, uh, testing different assumptions and, and reallocating time. But I was born premature. I was born six weeks premature and was in uh, intensive care unit for quite a while. So that you can see that there's a scar there. So, mm-hmm. Looks like a cigarette burn. Yeah. You know, another big scar here. Um, I actually uh, can only use a portion of my left lung mm-hmm. um, because it collapsed when I was born. It's a chemical called surfactant that maintains surface tension. If you're born too premature, you die because your lungs collapse. My left lung collapsed. Put on a respirator. That's what the scar here is from. And when I had, because I couldn't oxygenate my blood, I had my blood, my entire blood, my entire body volume of blood transfused five times. And I had a lot of health issues as a, as a child. Couldn't really exercise, and um, ended up because it was the only sport I could really compete in, uh, and the only one that. Would, Exhausted me enough to deal with my hyperactivity. My mom put me into kid wrestling. She put me into a wrestling program. So it was weight class based. And uh, that was my sport for the next 15 years or so. And that led into, uh, I went to Japan as an exchange student at 15. 
my first time out of the U.S. I was a year in Japan, the only non-Japanese student in a school of about 5,000 students <laughs> living with a Japanese family. Um, that introduced me to judo, which introduced me to chokes and joint locks, and that got me into all the fighting stuff. Um, but I think wrestling is really what helped to develop a lot of the attributes that have translated into other into other areas. Were you geeky then? You know, were you into Oh, yeah, yeah, I was geeky. Um, geeky in my own way. I mean, I, I was always, I, I always, I enjoyed academics. Um, but uh, but technology and... Technology, uh, yes, but not in the sense that most people think of technology. So most people think of technology as computers, video cameras. I was always more interested in physical performance, so chemistry, biochemistry, uh, supplementation, nutrition, uh, blood testing. I mean, I'm fascinated by blood testing. I get extensive blood testing done every three months or so to trend everything. Uh, it's fascinating to me, endlessly fascinating to me. You so trained your own blood test? Doctors terrible at it. I don't want to even get into it, but doctors don't trend. They'll look at absolute values, and if, we, if you're within a range, they'll say, oh, you're fine. Even if, if they were to trend it, let's say on a monthly basis, they'd see it be dropping 5% per month. That indicates a problem, but they don't trend. So I do the trending myself. And um, where's it coming with that? Yeah, so geeky. I think on many levels, quite geeky. But the technology, meaning online blogs, hardware, software, programming, things like that. That's all been very recent because I had a, uh, a phobia of that type of technology because I, my perception was that it would be too complex, too difficult for me to understand. And it isn't. It's, it's actually, a, to some level, I think most people, if they were to take the time and have somebody who could patiently explain a few things, would find that it's actually very interesting and understandable. You just need someone to sit down and be like, okay, this is software, this is hardware, this is how a hard disk works, this is how storage works, this is how RAM works. And you're like, oh wow, that makes sense. And um, so I've had the benefit of asking a lot of questions and doing that like, I'm kind of an idiot, but can you tolerate me for a few minutes routine? I do that very regularly, and as a result, I've learned a lot in the last few years. Um, so I'm, I'm geekier than ever then, I guess. And finally, when we come to look at what's become this phenomenon of four-hour work week, your book, really, that's the result of a girl, a girl that broke up with you. Is that right? Uh, uh, one huge contributing factor, sure. I mean, uh, I think that when you're following, when you're following the rules you've been taught to follow, when you're doing the things that everyone else is doing, it's hard to take a step back and see how ridiculous and unfounded they are. It's, it's hard to believe that 9 to 5 is arbitrary, that work should be something you do, not a place that you go. That you don't have to check email every five minutes or respond immediately as if it were I am. Um, so it took that one, uh, I think that one relationship to really force me to re-examine some of the assumptions I had about work life and career, retirement and so forth, to see just how completely unfounded they are. It's very hard to support them. Mm. And um, so, yeah. And are you still in touch with her? Does she know the cattle, that she was a catalyst? She might. <laughs> I mean, it took, me, uh, you know, it took me two years of exploration and experimentation to figure out what the alternatives were. So mm -hmm. she'd moved on by that point. I don't blame her. <laughs> and one thing that people would be interested in, you mentioned that if you did write another book, there would only be probably one. Have you got some thoughts as to what that might be or what that might be involved? I have some ideas, but I'm going to be very elusive about it. It's even my publisher doesn't have, has no indication of what it might be. Um, but it, it'll be, I'll put it this, this way. If I'm going to write another book, it will be much more controversial, I think, ultimately, uh, much more impactful than this book. And if you had one last message for your readers, what would it be? I would say... Never you find yourself on the side of majority, it's time to take pause and reflect. I think that's actually Mark Twain. But um, the most common answer and the most common actions are seldom the best. So just common, consistently test assumptions. Always ask why. And most things that people tell you you have to do or should do fall apart. So if you're unhappy, if you're overwhelmed, ask yourself why. Great. Thank you. Thanks for your time, team. My pleasure. 
You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.valeriekoo.com. That's Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.